Well, after um, a time of worship through song this morning, as we recall uh, what is yet to come, uh, we uh, have much to talk about this morning, uh, some of the things that uh, are yet future for us uh, as we consider uh, being in the eternal presence of God forever. Uh, And so before we do open the word of God this morning, let's go ahead and bow once more um, so that we may prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the word of God this morning. Gracious Father, uh, we thank you for this new day. Uh, We thank you that we can gather together like this as uh, your children, brothers and sisters uh, in Jesus Christ, saints, uh, as a uh, precious um, body of believers that has been bought and paid for by the shed blood of the Lamb of God, your Son. Uh, And Father, as we open up your word this morning, we ask that you would uh, tune our attention, that you would guide our thoughts and our minds Uh, that these truths would excite us about who we are in Christ Jesus, Uh, that as Kurt prayed earlier, that uh, as we think about all these things that uh, we'll do, uh, we'll rise, we'll fly away, uh, Lord, we we do realize first and foremost that the reason that we will be in your presence forever is solely based on your son's finished work on Calvary, Uh, and that we are recipients of those Uh, who have received your grace and mercy, uh, that you've given us the gift of faith that we may trust your son, uh, the one who is the uh, only one who can give us an introduction into your presence, uh, the only one that can pay our penalty for sin so that we can be in your presence for all of eternity. And so, Father, we thank you for those truths. We thank you for that reality. Uh, And may that guide our time this morning that your spirit would illumine our minds so that we will see and understand uh, all the things that you have for us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the fifth Sunday and the last of uh, a five-part mini-series here based in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, and I'll reread that once again as we consider our context, what brought us to this uh, time of looking into the presence of God. It says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, it begins and ends with Jesus. It begins and ends with him being that perfect sacrifice, him being obedient to the point of death on a cross, that through faith and trust in him and him alone, not based on any works that we do, not based in who our, our lineage is, not based in, in who we are in this world. It's solely based in Jesus Christ, the one whom we have boldness and access with confidence. And over the last month, it's hard to say, <laughs> believe that's already been a month, We've taken a look um, at uh, the difference between God's omnipresence, that he is in his fullness, in the fullness of his uh, uh, being, uh, not lacking in any aspect. He is fully present everywhere. There is nowhere you can go from God's presence. There's nowhere you can hide from him. Um, Everyone will face God one day uh, in judgment. Uh, And the question will be is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who paid your price, or will you yourself pay for the wages of your sin? Uh, And we distinguished God's omnipresence from his manifest presence, where he 
uh, for uh, you know a period of, of time or for a particular purpose, revealed himself and showed his glory. Uh, we saw multiple examples of that uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and then the week after that, we saw the greatest expression of God's presence with uh, man on earth through Jesus Christ, uh, the very incarnation of God the Son, uh, being the, the greatest expression of God's presence. Uh, until that which time, we are actually in the presence of God forever. Uh, and then we saw uh, the presence of God in the church age as we realized the indwelling Holy Spirit that is in every genuine believer in Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God indwells you 24-7, that everywhere you go, every thought that you think, everything that you say, everything that you do is in the presence of Almighty God, not only because He's omnipresent, but because the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. And then uh, the, the, the next weeks, we looked at uh, that the fact that we never lose sight or never lose the reality of God's presence as believers. Um, but we can, uh, because of sin, lose the awareness of God's presence. And that's what we took a look at last week uh, as a call to us to make sure that we keep a short account with God, that we do not allow things that can cause us to stumble or fall to uh, keep us from being aware of the presence of God because the reality of God's presence never ends because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit because God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere present. And so today we get the privilege of actually opening up the scriptures, opening up the very doors of heaven itself for what is yet to come. Uh, These are things that we have to look forward to um, as we consider Uh, The final aspect uh, in this uh, five-part series, and that is the eternal presence of God, where we find ourselves stepping over that threshold of death, uh, where, as we sung this morning, we'll fly away. uh, And all of the concerns of this life, all of the sorrows, all of the pain, all of the woes, all of the things that we battle with as a result of sin in this world and sin in our lives individually, will be delivered through the doorway of eternity uh, as sons and daughters of God into the very presence of God. And so like this morning, I'd like to take a few moments, and I'm going to encourage you to walk with us through uh, these scriptures this morning. Most of them will actually come out of the book of Revelation uh, as we look forward. Um, But I I want to begin by asking, what will be the greatest thing about heaven? And so I'd like to begin in the Gospel of John, actually, John chapter 14, uh, verses 2 and 3, because will the greatest thing about heaven be that there is a place which has been prepared for us? In the Gospel of John, it says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and this is Jesus speaking, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So is the greatest thing about heaven the fact that there is a place that God has prepared for us as believers? Um, something that God himself, in all of his wisdom, his understanding, his, his knowledge, his power, all of his being has taken the time to fashion and, uh, and make particularly for each one of us? Is that going to be the greatest thing about heaven? 
I think it's a, a bonus, but let's keep going because there's some things to consider. There's a lot uh, about heaven that we need to realize. So will it be the fact that it is beyond what we could have ever imagined, which takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but as is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Take those words in for a moment. But no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. You know, we can imagine a lot. We can imagine a lot of things we shouldn't. But in consideration of the God who is able to take and make everything out of nothing, to imagine what he has prepared for us. You know, is that the greatest thing about heaven? You know, we have a song we sing, I can only imagine. And that's really all we can do is imagine. I mean, we have things that are, we're going to be looking at here in a few moments to give us a, a, a glimpse where we can pull back the curtain just a little bit. But I think until we can hear the sound of angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. To think about the, 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 the splendor and the beauty of God's handiwork, unhindered, unaltered by the effects of sin. We can only imagine. It's hard for us to even begin to, to contemplate what it will be like. But will that be the greatest thing about heaven? I don't know. I'll let you be the judge. We're going to keep going. This takes us to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and we'll be camping here for a few moments. Because, you know, uh, the next thing is, will it be the glory of God himself? That will be the greatest thing about heaven. Revelation, chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. John speaking, he says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Can we really contemplate or imagine or take in or begin to appreciate being in the eternal presence of the eternal God in his eternal glory? The answer to that question is no. We can guess at it. We can look at the scriptures and have the Spirit illumine us to what it will be like. But I think until we actually experience it firsthand, unhindered by everything that hinders us in our, our thoughts, uh, in our existence here on earth. Because there's so many other, other concerns that we can think about that, that draw our attention away from, even today, knowing and experiencing the very glory of God or even the very presence of God. We talked about that last week. That this, the sins that so easily beset us or so easily entangle us, as the author of Hebrews says. Those are the things that keep us from fixing our eyes on Jesus. It keeps us from being able to see the actual glory of God being, you know, uh, seen even in the lives of believers today. That he's transforming people and taking them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. 
to watch someone have their eyes open to spiritual truths, truths that were foreign to them. See, that's a, that's a small glimpse into the glory of God in his transformation work through his son to take and open up someone's eyes eternally to everything that God is. Will it be the glory of God? Or will it be the 12 gates and 12 foundations? Take a look at verses 12 and 14, same chapter. As John goes on to communicate what he saw, he says, It had a great uh, high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You know, people have tried to draw what this looks like. And some of the things in the book of Revelation they shouldn't even attempt to draw, because it's just, again, until we actually see it with our own eyes. And even for John, when he had the opportunity, because God gave him a glimpse as he pulled back the veil of heaven for John to see, you know, the, the eternal presence of Almighty God, to see the, the new city, Jerusalem, that holy city, and to think about this. And, and notice that there are names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the gates. So there's your Old Testament. And then you've got at the end in verse 14 that this, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's the New Testament. So we have this coming together in unity of the Old and New Testament before the presence of the eternal God of all, the one who stepped down in time through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his incarnation but this, this great and high wall showing that it is secure, there is no attack that's going to happen. No one is going to infiltrate this place that does not belong there because they've been bought and paid for by the precious blood of the Lamb. No one is going to be able to escape the penalty uh, of their sins that find themselves in that place of eternal destruction, the place that the Bible calls hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're not going to escape from that and somehow get and work their way into the abode where God dwells and where every believer who has been bought and paid for, who has a place that has been prepared for them. See, because there's a great wall around it, and the one protecting that, the one who keeps that wall is God himself, and no one gets by God. Or will it be the gold and precious jewels that adorn it? Look at verses 18 to 21, same chapter. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Now, I've seen gold. I've got a piece of gold right here on my finger, but I can't say that it's clear as glass. Matter of fact, it looks kind of, it looks like it needs to be polished because it's worn, which is a remembrance of God's gift to me and my wife, Michelle, and the blessings of marriage because next month will be 30 years that I've worn this ring. But it says here, as we look into heaven, that the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. 
The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth crystoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates wear twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Wow, a gate made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Again, think about all of these jewels. Think about what man does with jewels today. You know, we wear things to adorn ourselves. You know, some of these jewels maybe you even have in your possession, maybe wearing them right now. But those are to adorn those vessels apart from God that are fit for destruction, fit for wrath because of sin before a holy God. But see, these jewels are not like the jewels of heaven itself. It says that the, the city is adorned with every kind of jewel, and, and you know that they are the most beautiful, most pure, no flaws. And to have a pearl big enough to be a gate? See, this is the abode where God dwells. This is what we have to look forward to is those who have, you know, been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. But in their pure beauty, instead of them adorning man, they're adorning God himself. Showing his beauty, his creativity, all that God is. Will it be that there is no temple? Look at verse 22, same chapter. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And we learned as we took a look at the presence of God that, you know, when Jesus Christ came, he says, you know, uh, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up because Jesus Christ himself was the temple. Because he came to eradicate, to do away with the temple made by human hands. Because he was going to be the final sacrifice. There was going to be no need of any sacrifice from that point forward. And so as John looks into heaven, he sees no temple because there's no need for a temple to come and to worship God because God himself is that temple. will be in the very presence of God Almighty forever. Will it be the river of water of life? This takes us to chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river of the water of life, speaking to refreshment in life. Thinking of being in the presence of God as we see this river flowing that is bright as crystal. You know, not like the streams, and maybe you've been in places where you've had the opportunity to be in the woods and in a place where, you know, the water runs clear because there's nothing as you can see with your naked eye, that is, you know, diffusing it or clouding it. But even that pales in comparison to this. Because everything that's here on this earth has been cursed by sin, but not in heaven. 
And I can guarantee you that what comes from the throne of God and the Lamb, when it says it's bright as crystal, it'll be the clearest water you've ever seen. Representing refreshment in life. Will that be the greatest thing about heaven? Or will it be the tree of life in verse 2 of that same chapter? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And you're going to notice that there's parallels to the original garden, the original creation, and the new creation that we find here in the scriptures of what's yet to come. So we see this, this tree of life, this unending, abundant blessing where uh, we, we find that um, death itself has been destroyed because we are in the very presence of God. We are in eternity, experiencing all there is to experience, enjoying perfect fruit, perfect things much like Adam and Eve did in the the original garden, because it was good what God had made until man destroyed it through his selfishness and his disobedience. It was beautiful to look at. It was beautiful for the eyes. The sounds of the garden were beautiful because the sound of the original garden had God walking through the garden. And here we find in heaven itself, in a time yet to come, the tree of life, Yielding its fruit in its month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Because there will be someone from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be enjoying this. Won't matter Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, because we're all one in Christ. And so it will be a beautiful thing to experience among every believer in Jesus Christ, no matter where they grew up, in what time frame they lived, going all the way back to the beginning, because every believer, past, present, and future, will enjoy being there in the presence of God Almighty and the river that flows by the tree of life itself. Will it be that there is nothing accursed? Look at verse 3, same chapter, 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Nothing accursed. See, everything since Adam and Eve, in particular Adam, because God held Adam accountable, because he created Adam first. Everything since that fall, as a result of that fall, as a result of that disobedience, has been accursed. Mankind, animal kind, everything in that which God made has been cursed as a result of sin. It says here, no longer will there be anything accursed. So no more guilt, no more strife, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more results of the fall that cursed everything because of man's disobedience before the God that is thrice holy, but instead standing in the presence of God Almighty forever, realizing that there is going to be nothing 
And underline that word, nothing accursed. Because everyone that is there is there because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Your debt has been paid in full when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, you are clothed in a righteousness not your own, and you are no longer. Once you step over that threshold of death into heaven itself, accursed because you will be given a glorified body fit for eternity, a body that no longer struggles with guilt, strife, sickness, sorrow, or death itself. But will that be the greatest thing about heaven? Or will it be that there's no more night? Look at verse 5 of chapter 22. It says, And night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Think about that for a moment. That God himself, the one who is who dwells in unapproachable light, will be the light of all of heaven itself. And we talk about the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere present in his fullness. Well, see, this is exactly what it speaks to when we think about heaven itself, because we will be in the very presence of God, the God who is everywhere present. And his very presence, his very glory, his very holiness will be the very light of heaven itself. will be in the light of his holiness and the light of truth. So no more lies, no more half-truths, if even such a thing exists, will be in the presence of Almighty God, the one who is the truth, not guessing anymore, but enjoying that light that will light everything because we are in the presence of the eternal God of all. One last one. Verse 4, same chapter. No, actually chapter 21. I'm taking you back a chapter. Will it be because it is a place of no more what? Well, the verse tells us. It says in verse 4 of chapter 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And so this is the other side of you know, of, uh, I guess, creation itself. Adam and Eve on one end, and at the other end, the reverse of the curse. Because we have the fall on this end, we have the reverse of the curse, so that when we are in the eternal presence of God forevermore, there won't be a tear in an eye. Tears representing that which is painful, hurtful, sorrowful. And death shall be no more, because we'll be on the other side. We'll have glorified bodies fit for eternity, bodies that will not fail us, that won't hit the snooze alarm on Sunday morning when you'd rather roll over and not come to church because you're going to be in the eternal presence of God forever. No mourning, no crying, no pain because the former things have passed away. Will that be the greatest thing about heaven? Well, you know... It's wonderful that God is preparing a place for us. It is wonderful that it is beyond what we could imagine. It is wonderful that the glory of God will be there. It is wonderful that there are 12 gates and 12 foundations, that there's gold, precious jewels to adorn it, 
that there's no temple, that there is the river of the water of life, that there is the tree of life, that there is nothing to curse, that there is no more night, that there is no more tears, no more mourning, no more pain. But I'm here to tell you this morning that is not the greatest thing about heaven. Those are all benefits of what heaven provides because we're there. But see, the the whole beginning five weeks ago was for the purpose of bringing you to this point, for you to see that the, the most beautiful thing about heaven, the most beautiful thing about eternity, the most wonderful, amazing awesome, whatever word you want to, to codify in there to make it part of what you would describe heaven to be. The thing that makes heaven the, the greatest thing and what will be the greatest thing in heaven is God himself. The very God that you have the ability to walk with, abide with through the Holy Spirit that indwells you each and every day. But you're hindered here. You still stumble and fall. You still think things you should not think that dishonor God that are sinful in his sight. They've been bought and paid for because our sins are bought and paid for past, present, and future. When we think back, you know, when Christ died on the cross, guess what? Everything was future, for us at least. But see, the greatest thing about heaven is going to be being in the very presence of God eternally. All the other things are just part and parcel of being in heaven. But you know, I don't even need all of those things because God's presence is enough to be in the presence of Almighty God, to experience firsthand the love of God in Christ Jesus, to enjoy him and worship him unhindered. Nothing biding for Worship that truly belongs to him. So the greatest thing about heaven is being in the very presence of God eternally. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And it's not far better because Paul would no longer experience all of those things that he was experiencing because he was called out and selected by God for a particular mission to bring the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to both Jew and Gentile. No, the, the reason why it is far better is because he's in the presence of his Savior. He's in the presence of Almighty God forever. Unhindered fellowship, unhindered worship. Remember back when we studied the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, how is someone pure in heart? See, this is not talking about an external change, which the religious leaders of Jesus' day were very, you know, forthright in proclaiming. Part of the reason why Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said that, for by grace you are saved through faith, it is not of your own doing, is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. See, it's purity of heart 
which we know scripturally it says that our hearts are dead. Our spiritual lives are dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. It's like a rock. And what God does is he performs spiritual surgery to take that hard rock, removes it, and puts a heart that beats after God. A heart that is alive spiritually. Because only the pure in heart will see God. And how are they pure? Because of Jesus Christ. Not because of what they do. Because that purity, that righteousness comes from the Son of God and the Son of God alone. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, that's how the pure in heart will see God, through Christ. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Can you begin to imagine what it will be like? To quote part of a verse of a song. What will it be like when Christ appears? Because he is coming. Scriptures say so, so I believe it. What will it be like? You know, the the Jews had an idea of what it was going to be like when their Messiah came, and they were completely off base because they were worshiping anything but God. So what will it be like for us as those who have been redeemed when we see our Savior appear? It'll be out of this world. Be wonderful. See, we will also no longer see through the mirror dimly, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. It's not going to be anything that's going to hinder our fellowship with God. Sin is not going to be a hindrance because we will have a glorified body fit for eternity that is free from sin. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, that's one of the wonderful things about heaven, is the fact that we'll be in the presence of God. We will be with him face to face. The one who now is in an inapproachable light. See, God has to fashion a body for each and every one of us that is fit for eternity. A body that can be in the presence of that light that will light all of heaven. To be able to worship him unhindered. We will see God as he is. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Notice it says we will be like him. We will not become God because there's only one God. But we'll be like him because we'll be fit for eternity. We'll be holy as he is holy. We'll be in the very presence of God Almighty. A presence as we looked in the Old Testament was something that brought us fear and anxiety to be in the very presence of holiness that caused us to look away because no man can see God and live short of having a glorified body fit for eternity as one who has been qualified by Jesus Christ, God's Son. The one who gives us that introduction. 
So you will be without sin, with fullness of truth, without imperfection, no hindrance before God. And see, that's the, that's, that is the, the wonderful thing about heaven. Not all the other things I listed, they, they are wonderful in their own. But the most wonderful thing is being in the very presence of God. Your faith being made sight. To see your Savior's hands and feet. To have your glorified being be overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ Jesus. So how should this inform our lives today? Because guess what? This is not heaven. Just in case you thought heaven was on earth, as the songwriters say. It's not. Not even close. John MacArthur said, All death can do to the believer is deliver him to Jesus. It brings us into the eternal presence of our Savior. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, Truly, the presence of Jesus is all the heaven we desire. See, that should be what we are focusing on. Not all the peripheral things, not all the things that, you know, are, are going to be the no mores, not all the things of what it's going to, to be like to look at all those things. They're, they're given to us in Scripture to give us a taste of what is yet to come. But again, the most important thing is, is that we will be face to face with our Savior, that our faith will be made sight. So in the meantime, as we await that coming reality, which for every believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, you can count on this 100%. There's no fear, no doubt, because Jesus Christ's righteousness is what you are clothed in. And the Father does not reject his Son. Matter of fact, he embraces and loves his Son. So I close with the intention of Psalm 16, which we read part of it early on in this series. But we'll close by looking at verses 8 to 11. It says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So my challenge to each and every one of you, the challenge to myself as a son of God, is that we would live in light of what is yet to come to live in light of who we are in Christ Jesus right now, to live in light of the fact that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God right now. It doesn't matter what man may do to us, God has us. And even David, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Do you notice the intention? I set the Lord before me. I set the Lord before me in such a way that I gather together with other believers in Jesus Christ, others that have been redeemed, others that have been born again, 
because they are my brothers and sisters in Christ, because I love them because they love this, the same and only God that I love. I make intention to be in the word of God each and every day because this is God's truth to me. This is what God is communicating to me in his love letter to let me know what Jesus Christ did for me. To let me know how I should live my life in light of that reality. To let me know how I should be looking toward the future when the Son of God does come in all of his glory. To know that there is a day coming which may precede the coming of Christ or might be after the coming of Christ, where I'll be given a glorified body fit for eternity, where I will see my Savior face to face. See, David was a man after God's own heart because his focus was on God himself. Not on all the other peripheral things. He didn't let those things affect him. It doesn't mean that David didn't make mistakes because he did. But what characterized his life was exactly summed right here, that I have set the Lord always before me. He did that as a young man, as he stood before Goliath, as everyone, including Goliath himself, made fun of him. But who is this uncircumcised Philistine who stands before me and before the armies of the Lord God Almighty? See, it was about God didn't matter the size of the obstacle because he knew God was going to be God. So set the Lord before you. So that means in relation to who you are individually in Christ, who you are corporately as part of this body of believers, who you are as a parent to your children or grandparent to your grandchildren. Don't let God just be the seconds, the thirds, the fourths, the fifths. You set the Lord before you so that he guides you and directs you and leads you, that you're abiding and walking with him. Because it's then that you will not be shaken or won't be moved. We love singing that song. It's got a good tempo, makes us feel full inside. But see, that fullness that being shaken is really contingent on us setting the Lord before us because all the obstacles of life are always going to come in. They're always going to be pressing in. They're always going to be pulling us away from having God at the forefront, at the foremost point of attention to give things that don't deserve glory or honor or praise. Glory, honor, and praise instead of getting to the one true God, the one who deserves the honor, the glory, and the praise because of his son, Jesus Christ, because of what and who we are in Christ Jesus. You notice he says, he will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Because that's the final destination of the wicked, those who do not know Jesus Christ. See, he belongs to God. And he knows there's a day coming because he's made known to him the paths of life, and in the presence of God there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because, as he says in verse 5 of that same passage, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
So what is the greatest thing about heaven? Presence of God. Good. Somebody was listening. So let's stand this morning as we close out our service by remembering how great and awesome and mighty our God is as we sing, How Great Thou Art.